So it's not just, hey, you know, I want to lose uh, 20 pounds, right? You know, I think a lot of people want to lose a little bit of weight. But part of it is not just, uh, hey, I want to lose weight. It's really, am I willing to exercise more? Am I willing to change my diet? Am I willing to, am I willing to make those trade-offs that are linked to what I want to be and what I want to get to? Hello and welcome to the ALU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa, where we explore more on being a bold entrepreneur leader. I'm your host, Savannah Oulo, and today I have with me Paul Nsalil. Paul is a president and CEO of AgriLiant and has quite the rapport once you listen to his journey from the likes of Lehman Brothers and Nike. He has acquired a broad, successful experience across industries yet focused on ag biotech and food for the past 12 plus years. Listening to this episode, you'll note a few things. He's charismatic, strategic, a performance-oriented leader, and with exceptional interpersonal skills. Most importantly, what do you think the landscape of agribusiness looks like in Africa? And how do we empower people to compete at higher margins? Well, stay tuned and know it all. Join us as we uncover a whole new world from our diverse community of entrepreneur leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Paul Nsalel. So thank you, Paul, for being with us today. Um, the AOE podcast has been anticipating you <laughs> quite today because you have a very, very busy schedule. So tell us more about yourself and, you know, why, <clears throat> why you chose to be in the field that you're in. Also, I, uh, I'm actually originally from Cameroon. Uh, right. You know, the country that is great in football and, uh, but from the, French-speaking part of the country, and that's where I uh, spent most of my childhood. I, uh, oh. My dad is an, uh, an agronomist and uh, worked in uh, one of the largest uh, producing companies over there in Cameroon, exporting bananas and pineapple uh, primarily to Europe. And so when I, had, uh, my, when I finished my high school, I basically had a scholarship as most good students in Cameroon back then to go study in France. And, uh, and I studied math in undergrad and then uh, math in my first graduate degree and uh, started my career in investment banking in Europe. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and then, uh, and then um, after a few years, decided to do my MBA at uh, Wharton, which I did. Joined Lehman in New York spent a little bit of time there, then a little bit of time at Nike. And joining Monsanto in the ag sector came a little bit as a, um, uh, it was a, an occurrence of, uh, of uh, randomness. They were looking yeah. for people who had good experience in consumer goods to help them improve uh, uh, their brand. So that's how I joined. And so I joined in a field that I knew fairly well, so marketing and strategy. I mm-hmm. had the opportunity to then go to Eastern Europe to uh, run, uh, uh, help run the business in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and then from then it just took off. I came back to the US to run the Eastern part of the, the country and had increasing res- uh, levels of responsibility um, up to the point where I became chief commercial officer of a small publicly traded company uh, with uh, responsibility over the 65 countries where we were selling. 
And right. so I was just named very recently the president and CEO of Agroliant, which is the third largest uh, seed company in North America. And right. uh, I've been in the job for a month. The reason I like what I'm doing and the reason I like this field is because, you know, feeding a growing population is a, a real problem for mankind. So that's point number right. one. Point number two, I think uh, farmers all around the world, they may have different technologies and different um, uh, tools, but they have the same outlook in life. Farming is not just a profession and a job, it's a lifestyle. And the idea that I'm helping farmers and that this company that I'm working for is helping farmers is something that I find very attractive. And then finally, as a you know native African, it's something that I think is, uh, you know, just food security in general is something that is always going to be important to me. Right. So mentioning that, and that it's remarkable hearing your journey from, you know, how you started and how you are up to where you are right now. In your opinion, um, what are the major challenges facing agribusiness, the agribusiness sector that, that needs addressing? So, I mean, if you just think about it, um, like if you think about it just here in North America, there is about 40% of corn grain that goes to ethanol. And ethanol right. is basically fuel for car and, and the rest, right? So if you look at where we are today with COVID-19 and reduced mobility, people traveling less, driving less. So there is less consumption of fuel, therefore less demand for corn and the rest. And uh, that is putting pressure on commodity prices. That is then in turn, uh, reducing the profitability of farmers and really putting the onus on us to be providing advice and uh, helping farmers drive more productivity uh, to be able to do well, right? So that's one big element that is very sort of like uh, topical right now. The right. other element in one of the crops that we are, that is important to us, which is soybean, is the fact that the two largest producers in the world of soybean are basically Brazil and uh, the US. Obviously, I know you guys are all familiar with um, uh, the, the issue of trade with uh, China and about 40% of soybean, US soybean goes to China. So with limited access to export, that is also pressure on commodity price. And then when you broaden that to the world and the developing world in particular, when you think about Africa, you think about some parts of Southeast Asia or Central America, I think uh, the problem then is really divided in two, right? So you have large commercial farmers that you can find in places like South Africa, some pockets of Kenya, Zambia, and uh, more and more in places like Nigeria, where those guys are going to have similar issues than North America, maybe with an added sort of component of infrastructure, right? right. And, and currency. And then you have sort of the small holder who tend to be more uh, subsistence driven. And the issue there is going to be, how do we help those folks, we as an industry, help those folks get access to quality input to be able to improve the yield and the productivity of their farms, right? So that's okay. that's kind of what I see there. Okay, great, and it's amazing how you have been able to break that down. Um, I've I've never I've never looked at it from that perspective. So thank you so much for that. 
So um, in many countries, most crops are produced by small-sized farms with limited mechanization and capacity, leading to poor yields. Fragmented markets, price controls, and poor infrastructures also hamper production. So how can small-scale farmers transition from how can small-scale farmers transition to commercial agriculture? You know, a lot of it is a system, right? And uh, and uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, creative things that have been done in different parts of the world. I know, for example, in India, and I believe in some pockets in Africa, the advance of uh, technology around, you know, phone technology in general, it's something that has enabled um, uh, input company to provide more targeted advice to farmer. And what do I mean by that? I think primarily about uh, the ability to, you know, and the process, the way you usually worked is you had a code that you typed on your phone and that enabled geolocalization and that geolocalization then we would be able to understand, you know, the meteorological conditions around the farmer and be able to advise them as to when to plant, potentially some of those elements, right? Just the agronomy part of it. So there is a just the process of planting and growing and all that, that I think we have technology today that can enable uh, uh, doing that piece better. So that's that's one. I think the second one is, you know, the, the inevitably the piece about accessing quality input is also linked to financing, right? right? And I think there is a whole conversation around whether it is an element of pledging the grain to have access to input or I think we have to collectively figure out a way to provide uh, quality input to those farmers because that would really improve their yield. Again, for context, if you take some of the highly productive land in Ukraine or in uh, or in uh, central Iowa, you could get to a productivity level that is close to 16 to 20 tons of corn per hectare, right? And when you look at the yields in uh, in Africa or even in Southeast Asia, uh, it's not uncommon to see people consistently below five tons per hectare or even right. sometimes around two tons. And that's a huge amount that is left on the table that would really then have consequences around the ability of those farmers to honestly even finance, you know, things that would then enable the, the kids of that farmer to have a better out, outlook on life, right? Education, you know, and all of the rest. So so that's sort of like the second item. And then the third item uh, in my mind, and this relates more to produce, has to do with elements of infrastructure, right? I think yeah. uh, over time, the cold chain is uh, creates a huge amount of waste or the absence of cold chain creates a huge amount of waste. And if you think about uh, what is produced versus what is consumed, I think the statistic is something like a third to 40% of what is produced is actually being wasted and not being consumed. Some of it is the absence of cold chain and the transit. And a lot of it in the developed world is at the consumption table where people buy more than they really need and never really consume that. So I think there is another axis of uh, resolution there. So those three pieces, access to input, and financing linked to uh, to that advice and leveraging technology. And then the last part is the cold chain and infrastructure part of it. That's how I see that. 
This podcast is brought to you by Venture by AOU, a free course for entrepreneurs. Do you want to know how to overcome entrepreneurial challenges from real life experiences? Well, Venture is an online course designed for young and aspiring entrepreneurs. It features more than 10 AOU entrepreneur leaders who will guide and inspire young entrepreneurs. You can find Venture on venture.aoueducation.com. Once again, venture.aoueducation.com. Venture, a course for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Now back to our conversation. Great, and I'll, I'll just follow up from there. You've talked about um, a lot of exports to like China and what have you, but um, as an African native myself as well, um, we've seen like there's a lot of importation of crops um, or subsidized foods. And, you know, what do you think, what do you think would be the best, what, what would you think would be the best, um, best practice to have to, you know, sort of reduce the importation of food and have it and have local farmers um, more empowered and more encouraged to like, you know, sell their product within their countries or within the continent itself? Yeah, and, and I have a certain bias here, and I'm not trying to tell necessarily uh, folks everywhere around the world what to do. But, right. uh, you know, so it's my personal, it's my individual sort of like uh, opinion, right? right? I think uh, I think in a lot of places around the world, we have, or uh, folks have some level of suspicion around, around like uh, GMO. They have suspicion of some level of technology. And I think really understanding and accessing technology is something that is really important. Yes. And in fact, uh, and I, you know, again, this this may be, um, uh, this may not be something that is necessarily very popular, but if you think about uh, what the advance of technology does, it actually reduces the level of pesticides used in nature, right? Yeah. Because when you start having Take the example of cotton, right? And I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, BT cotton was uh, uh, authorized for planting in Kenya recently. It had yeah. been in the past in Burkina Faso. That may have changed. <coughs> but the, the really what that does is it really reduces significantly the amount of pesticide that is being poured over the plant and really the exposure that you know, generally farming is a family activity in some of those areas of the world. The exposure that significant swath of, of the population are having using those pesticides. So, you know, I think one one avenue is definitely the, the technology piece, right? And right. and uh, there is really no way, you know, to to produce more if you don't have better breeding, better genetics, and access to, quite frankly, elements of GMO, right? The, the other part of it is, you know, being quite intentional. I think uh, historically there's been countries in Africa that have done quite a good job in, uh, you know, you look at how some of the West African countries like Ivory Coast and others have had a very deliberate policy around uh, uh, cocoa and became extremely influential in the mm-hmm. amount and uh, of uh, production that is coming out of those countries in those crops, right? So, you know, it's really about being intentional. I think there is a, a a reservoir of talent, activity, will, and it's just bringing some of those together and uh, and making decision along those lines. At least that would be my opinion. Right. So, okay. 
just further into that, um, you know, a lot of sub-Saharan African countries are ill-equipped to meet its food requirements. So how can we have more African produce compete with higher margins? Like, you know, aside from having access to um, a certain extent of GMOs or the technologies or, you know, even the knowledge, some of them don't have access to these things. So how, how, how can we enable them to have access to these resources in order for them to compete with higher margins? It's a, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it's some of those are commercial policies, right? And trade policies right. that the countries are putting in place. And uh, I mean, you, you know, if you think about, and I'm speaking just very generically, right? If I speak right. very generically, if you take any large company today, you know, South Africa is a significant market when it comes to row crops. And right. South Africa obviously allows for uh, for uh, uh, pretty much a significant amount of technology. I think we there is a lot of acreage of corn in Tanzania, quite a bit in Kenya between, you know, the hills and the, and, and the valley. Uh, Zambia is a, you know, uh, has significant elements. And then when you go to the northern part of Africa, you have a lot more around uh, citrus and uh, and uh, and uh, limited apple. Um, and so I guess the, the logic of it for me is, uh, you know, it's a step by step. So it's a how do we, you know, how do the countries have a policy that invites uh, uh, companies to have a, you know, a reciprocal interest to be able to have significant activities there and start rolling the ball, right? And right. Uh, um, at least historically, and I haven't kept up very recently with uh, all of the legislation, historically, it's been difficult uh, to, uh, uh, to have those setups particularly because the regulatory system in certain countries is not always established, not enabling companies to go in and start selling, right? So there has to be a regulatory framework that allows for that. So that's, and I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but mm -hmm. some of those elements are policy driven. Okay. Um, you've, you've answered it to a certain extent. Um, I could understand how somebody could, you know, maybe like interpret it in a different way. Um, but seeing as this is the AOU podcast, we talk about entrepreneur leadership in Africa and, you know, encourage people to be bold entrepreneur leaders. Say um, a 20-year-old is starting a business um, in the agriculture industry. What advice would you give them um, getting into this industry or starting or, you know, what, what, what key things would you, would you encourage them to keep in mind as they go through their journey? You know, I, you know, and I, I think my advice are, are probably going to be in a, in a two broad buckets, right? I think uh, right. the first bucket in my mind is really an element about uh, believing in oneself, right? right. I think, right. Uh, and th this really doesn't necessarily just, is is not necessarily restricted only to, um, to agriculture or uh, to uh, entrepreneurship or, but I think there is an element of, uh, you have to have a belief of what you can do and what you can be, right? right. And, uh, uh, you know, when I, you know, there is, there is a, when I was uh, coming to study in Europe, I had a conversation with my grandfather and he said, 
something to the effect of when you wake up every morning and you look at the mirror, you have to be okay with what you see. So there is a level of comfort about oneself and a level of comfort about one's ambition that has to be there. And that has to be there in, in good and bad times. And there has to be a belief that it can happen, right? And that's a really, really important part, right? And the yeah. second part of it, we and, we, and, and by the way, that belief then has to be linked to, you know, the trade-off and the commitment that the individual is ready to make, right? So it's not just, hey, I am, uh, I want to, uh, you know, I want to lose uh, 20 pounds, right? You know, I think a lot of people want to lose a little bit of weight, you know, maybe <laughs> not, not Alex. Alex looks like a very good looking slim guy, right? But, <laughs> but it's, it's, but part of it is not just, uh, hey, I want to lose weight. Is really, am I willing to exercise more? Am I willing to change my diet? Am I willing to, am I willing to make those trade-offs that are linked to what I want to be and what I want to get to, right? So, right. so th th that's the one whole piece, right? And then the other piece is, uh, uh, you know, being informed and understanding what the industry is about, understanding what it takes. And uh, and uh, uh, there's a whole network of, you know, African and non-Africans who are very interested in the industry on the continent, and uh, and uh, you know, leveraging those those relationships and be being willing to take a risk, right? It's right. I understand the fact that it's a very generic answer, but uh, I think a lot of it has to do with belief and willingness to make some trade-offs. Right. Um, I, I feel like that's the kind of advice that I needed today, <laughs> to be honest, to be very honest with you. Uh, thank you so much for that. Well, Paul, I, this marks the end of the episode. You know, it's been amazing having you on here. You've been very candid and very open and, you know, you've been able to express your thoughts and feelings on the agribusiness in Africa. Thank you so much for that. Um, we hope to see you soon once again, if you'd like to join a podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, very good. Thank you. And that was Paul Nsalel, strategic planner at Nike, to president and CEO of AgriLiant, giving us very important advice and his two, if not 10 cents on the agribusiness on the continent. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor and Apple Podcasts for exclusive access to all the gems of knowledge we drop here. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. This is the AOU podcast, Entrepreneur Leadership in Africa, Real Stories, Real Experiences. <laughs>